And so the Chancellor extends the 80% furlough scheme into March. It's a relief for hundreds of thousands of workers across Scotland. Scotland's care home calamity, MSP, secure an immediate public inquiry. Opposition parties order the government to release the Alex Salmon papers. And as lockdown returns to England, we face a legal travel ban in Scotland. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Hollywood. Right now is not the right time to divert their resources to respond to the rightful demands of a public inquiry. I refute absolutely that this government is hiding, that it's spinning, that it's avoiding any issues or demands on how we have responded to this pandemic or how we will in the weeks ahead. Martin Da, Fiskema. Opposition MSPs have dealt the Scottish Government a double whammy this week. They've secured the call for an immediate public inquiry into the thousands of care home deaths across Scotland. And they've demanded the Scottish Government release legal advice from the court battle with Alex Salmond over a botched harassment probe. A busy start in a week when England goes into lockdown, the sequel. And the First Minister flags up potential legal action to ban us travelling across Scotland. We begin in our care homes and the scandal of death from Covid. Shadow Health Secretary Donald Cameron launches the Conservative demand for an immediate public inquiry. And he secures cross-chamber support. I want to begin by paying tribute uh, to all of Scotland's care workers who've been at the forefront of protecting some of the most vulnerable people in our society, whether it's those who work in a care home, those who deliver care at home, or those who simply look after a relative or friend. We thank you for all that you do and all that you continue to do. The the unpredictable nature of COVID-19, especially in the early stages of the pandemic in March and April, this year has created significant challenges for the care sector, but those at the front line have been quick to adapt to the new reality that we face. Protecting those who receive care must always be at the forefront of our minds, but it's also clear, I'm afraid to say, that there have been significant and costly mistakes that have been made during the course of this year. Mistakes made by this SNP government, which may have cost lives. At the heart of the detailed report from Public Health Scotland released last week was confirmation that 113 COVID-positive patients were sent from hospitals to care homes and some 3,061 patients were discharged into care homes without being tested at all. We also know that since the start of the pandemic, there have been 2,048 deaths from coronavirus in our care homes as of today. And as of the 28th of October, 134 adult care homes had a current case of suspected COVID-19. These are serious and concerning figures. And of course, every death from this virus is a terrible, terrible tragedy. There is, however, a lot that remains unknown. We do not yet know the number of positive tests from care homes that suffered outbreaks after receiving a COVID-positive patient. We do not yet know the number of positive tests from care home staff. We do not yet know when precisely the First Minister became aware that COVID-positive patients were transferred from hospitals to care homes and what action she took to investigate it. These are serious questions which require serious and urgent answers. And politicians of all political stripes have demanded clarity on numerous occasions 
from the First Minister, from the Cabinet Secretary and from uh, public bodies such as Public Health Scotland, etc. Regrettably, these answers have not often been forthcoming. This government's failure to protect Scotland's most vulnerable people is a scandal, and I do not shirk from describing it that way. It is clear to us and to others in this chamber that only an immediate public inquiry will hold ministers to account and give grieving families the answers they deserve. Now, of course, I know what the Cabinet Secretary will say to that call. Indeed, it is in her amendment. She says that it is not the time and we must wait till this is over and it is reasonably practicable to do so. But the simple reality is that we do not know when this will all be over. We are currently experiencing a second wave. We may regrettably have a third wave. It could be a matter of months or another year. We do not know. And while we wait, the families of those who died in our care homes will get no answers and no closure. And we owe it to them to get those answers now, not later. And it's precisely because this virus has not gone away that we need to get to the bottom of what went wrong. Care homes were, of course, the abode of many elderly people who were especially vulnerable. It had to be done safely, and it was not done safely. Cabinet Secretary. I'm grateful to the member for taking an intervention, and I'm grateful too for his comment about the importance of uh, what was at that point a shared agreement across this chamber in terms of protecting our NHS. Will the member also accept that in terms of doing it safely, the discharge of patients from hospital to any setting, that the guidance on the 13th of March, notwithstanding his point about testing, the guidance on the 13th of March was very clear that there should be a clinical risk assessment. The guidance on the 26th of March from memory was clear that not only should that happen, but put in place particular infection prevention and control steps that, that has been there since 2012 and also required the isolation of individuals in their own homes, as well as significant restriction on communal and other activity for the purpose of safety. Now, I will give you your time back, but we don't have a lot of time in hand now, but you will get all your time back, Mr Cameron. Well, in terms of the, the, the Cabinet Secretary mentioned the guidance of the 26th of March, that guidance also stated that individuals being discharged from hospital do not routinely need confirmation of a negative COVID-19 test. So we can't uh, pick selectively from the guidance, despite its terms. There have been significant failings, which have probably led to deaths in our care homes. Every death is a death too many, and the affected families deserve answers. They have waited too long. Now is not the time for delay. Now is the time to take meaningful action. And the only way that can be fulfilled is through an urgent, judge-led public inquiry. It is a simple request, and we call on the Scottish Government to support the motion in my name. Thank you. I now call on Jean Freeman to speak to and move Amendment 23226.2. Presiding Officer, COVID-19 is a cruel virus that is particularly dangerous for the most elderly and vulnerable in our society. In the first wave, as we have heard, the lives of over 2,000 care home residents were lost. That is devastating for their loved ones and for the staff who cared for them. And I will never be able to adequately express my sorrow and condolences to them all. In moving the amendment in my name, I want to be very clear on this. As we have said repeatedly, this government wants and will welcome a public inquiry into the response and handling of this pandemic. That is not in dispute between us and any other party in this chamber. A public inquiry will be critical for a number of reasons, not least the lessons it will draw out for any future government response to a global pandemic and the critical improvements to any part of the health and social care infrastructure to either keep 
or introduce in preparation for that. I think the only disagreement today may be in terms of the timing of such an inquiry. Right now, as the number of cases, the rate of test positivity, the numbers of people in hospital and the numbers who have died must make crystal clear to all of us, we remain in the middle of a global pandemic. And if our ultimate responsibility as a government is to do all we can to save life, then that, without question, must remain our focus. Uh, Monica, call Medical, Monica Lynn to speak to move Amendment 2326.1. Care homes have been at the epicentre of the COVID-19 crisis and unfortunately the crisis is far from over. Today it has sadly been confirmed that six of my constituents from Caledonian Court Care Home in Falkirk have died in the last few days following an outbreak. So on behalf of Scottish Labour, I extend my sympathies to their loved ones and indeed to everyone who has lost someone special to them during this awful pandemic. And I also want to pay tribute to healthcare workers who have also lost their lives, those who have become ill in the line of duty, and to thank all of the workforce for their ongoing efforts. It is vital that Parliament gives proper attention to the impact of the pandemic response on care home residents and the workforce. So I am grateful to Donald Cameron for tabling the motion and for the opportunity to give these vital matters our attention. We will support the motion because we strongly believe that getting the public inquiry underway is in the public interest. My amendment calls on the government to commence cross-party talks on the inquiry remit. And I think the Cabinet Secretary has made fair points about the four-nation context and so on. We need to have a discussion about this. We recognise that Scottish Care and others would prefer the work to begin later. However, many others have added to the compelling case for action beginning now, including Age Scotland, GMB Scotland and other unions, the COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice UK group. So we believe that cross-party work should be happening now so that we can agree the terms of reference, identify where there are gaps in, in data and research and fill those gaps quickly. And I think Donald Cameron touched on this, but the voices of families are really important but so too are the voices and experiences of people who live in care homes and we're not hearing enough about them and they don't have time, Cabinet Secretary, so we have to capture their views. We need to discuss who would lead the inquiry and so on. We can agree these things, Presiding Officer. Thank you very much. And I call Jean Freeman to close with the Scottish Government. Cabinet Secretary, please. Thank you very much, Presiding Officer. Um, there is no question that a public inquiry should take place, but I want to be clear about a statutory public inquiry, and it should be statutory, uh, which, uh, what its requirements actually are. I welcome, as I said, uh, discussion across the Chamber on the draft remit and scope. And as Ms Lennon has said, and I agree with, and we will support her amendment, uh, it should be a public inquiry that takes a human rights approach. But it will be for the judicial lead to finally determine its remit, its scope and the information and evidence he or she requires and how the inquiry will proceed. And I am sorry, but I do not believe that you can really examine the response of this government to the pandemic and get the answers that people seek and the answers that we need to learn from and apply by focusing solely on one aspect of that response, as the motion suggests. Alison Johnson set out very clearly exactly how a public inquiry goes about its business. And I believe in, that in doing so proved precisely my point. A public inquiry is not an immediate exercise. 
A public inquiry rightly takes time to do its job properly. And right now, no, I'm not taking any interventions. Right now, as case numbers rise, as we battle to again suppress the virus, as our NHS and social care staff, after what has already been a very tough year, gear up for a long and difficult winter, right now is not the right time to divert their resources to respond to the rightful demands of a public inquiry. I refute absolutely that this government is hiding, that it's spinning, that it's avoiding any issues or demands on how we have responded to this pandemic or how we will in the weeks ahead. No, I won't. Presiding officer, Mr Finlay, no. No, I'm not avoiding anything, Mr Finlay. Uh, don't, please, uh, excuse me to everyone. You can't have your little debate across the chamber. If the member's not taking intervention, excuse officer. me a minute, Cabinet Secretary, just sit down a second, please. Oh, right. Yes. When a member says they're not taking an intervention, I understand it means they're not taking an intervention. End of. Cabinet Secretary. Thank you, Presiding Officer. I have only one final thing to say. Presiding Officer, the issue here is all about timing. It's all about when is the right thing to do right this moment and what is the right thing for this government, but also our NHS and social care staff to focus on, and that is to focus on how we continue to suppress this virus, how we steer our course safely through the coming months. Winter is always difficult. Winter in the context of a COVID pandemic will be even more difficult for every single one of us, but mostly it will be difficult for our frontline NHS and social care staff. And I do not believe that this is the right time to divert that resource away from the important work they do so very well in order to set up an immediate public inquiry. There will be a public inquiry. I will work across this chamber with colleagues to agree the draft remit, and we will go ahead and do that when we are through the immediacy of the immediate pandemic, and I believe members should support the amendment in my name. Thank you very much, Cabinet Secretary. I now call Brian Whittle to close the Conservatives. Mr Whittle, please. Uh, thank you, Deputy Presiding Officer, and I am very pleased to be closing this important debate on behalf of the Scottish Conservatives. Can I start, as others have done, by thanking the incredible staff and carers who have looked after our most vulnerable in such difficult times with such dedication and professionalism. But, uh, Presiding Officer, the Scottish Government must also own their own poor decisions and their mistakes. They must instruct a public inquiry now that will answer the public queries from those who have lost loved ones. Then we will be able to map ahead a more cohesive and compassionate route out of this crisis that we'll have, we can all have confidence in. Care home residents, care home staff and families and loved ones deserve that at the very least. I would ask the Chamber to support the motion in the name of Donald Cameron. Thank you very much, colleagues. The result of the vote on motion 23226 in the name of Donald Cameron, as amended, is yes 64, no 1, and there are 57 abstentions. The motion as amended is therefore agreed. The Scottish Government got another thumping when opposition MSPs united to demand it release legal advice from the botched case against former First Minister Alex Salmond. The Government has consistently refused to do so. They're not under any obligation to follow the vote in the Chamber, but they may feel morally obliged. We begin this segment of the Week in Holyrood with the Deputy First Minister John Swinney as he reacts to that vote. Thank you, Presiding Officer. In light of the vote that we just had on the Conservative motion on the Committee on Harassment, let me confirm that Ministers always seek to respect the decisions taken by Parliament. 
I will now consider the implications of the motion with my ministerial colleagues, consistent with our obligation in the ministerial code, and will advise Parliament accordingly of our response. And now part of the debate leading up to that moment. Here's Murdo Fraser, Conservative, Mid-Scotland and Fife. I am leading this short debate calling on the Scottish Government to publish the legal advice it obtained in relation to the judicial review taken against it by Alex Salmon in connection with its complaints procedure. And I should say at the outset that I regret we are having to spend debating time in this Parliament on such an issue. It has only been made necessary because of the failure of the Scottish Government to respond to consistent calls from members of the committee speaking unanimously and on a cross-party basis for publication of vital information that the committee believes is essential to allow us to do our work. This led to the committee convener, Linda Fabiani, stating on the 29th of September that the committee had been completely frustrated by the lack of evidence being provided from the Scottish Government, amongst others. So why does this matter, presiding officer? Well, we know that the legal stance taken by the Scottish Government led to the loss of the Judicial Review case and with it over £500,000 of taxpayers' money paid to Mr Salmon for his legal costs. If it is the case that the legal advice obtained by the Scottish Government, either in-house or externally from Council, said they had a good case to defend, then lessons need to be learned as to why such poor advice was offered to ensure no repetition in the future. The alternative explanation is much more sinister and concerning because Mr Salmon's allies believe that the legal advice obtained by the Scottish Government told them that the Judicial Review case should not be defended as there was very little chance of success. And if that is indeed what the legal advice said, then it means that a decision was taken at the top of the Scottish Government to go and defend the case regardless, a decision which, in the light of what we now know, was both irresponsible and reckless. More worrying still is the accusation that that decision was made on political grounds, and in effect the Scottish Government were pursuing a vendetta against the former First Minister and using public funds to do so. Presiding officer, it is essential to the work of the committee that the legal advice is made available to us. I hope that the Scottish Parliament will agree today to support my call for its publication and if we are successful in winning the vote later this afternoon, I would expect the Scottish Government to respect the parliamentary vote and produce the missing documentation as a matter of urgency and in so doing fulfil all the promises that have been made by the First Minister and the Deputy First Minister to be open and cooperative with this inquiry. To do otherwise, presiding officer, would be unforgivable. I move the motion in my name. Thank you. And I call on the Cabinet Secretary, John Swinney, to speak to and move Amendment 23218.2. Mr Swinney. Sir, I rise to move the amendment that stands in my name. Scots law provides that any person who seeks legal advice has the benefit of confidential communications with their lawyer. This is an important and well-established legal principle. In the same way, legal professional privilege is part of the normal operation of the Scottish Government. It supports good government by allowing ministers and officials to be informed by appropriate and full legal input when making decisions. Legal privilege is inherent to the functioning of good government and the rule of law. It is important that the legal advice which ministers and their officials receive is full and frank and not affected by concerns about it subsequently becoming public.
The principle of legal privilege has been upheld and respected by successive Scottish and United Kingdom governments of different political colours on a range of topics and including on very high profile issues. This includes recently the Conservative-led United Kingdom Government in relation to issues in connection with Brexit. Governments operate on the principle that legal privilege applies and this allows for open and candid legal advice to be taken to inform the process of decision-making. The Lord Advocate gave detailed answers on the issues at the heart of this debate at committee. He explained, and I quote, It is really important to say that the assertion of legal professional privilege is routine. Its waiver is exceptionally rare. And it happens against the background of very strong reasons of public policy for if Mr Mundell would allow me to finish the quote and then I will give way to him. Its waiver is exceptionally rare and it happens against the background of very strong reasons of public policy for maintaining that confidentiality which facilitates and encourages the seeking and receipt of legal advice by policymakers and ministers on a basis of absolute candour. The Scottish Government continue to assert legal professional privilege in relation to the work of the committee. This will not prevent us from continuing to cooperate with the committee's work in the supply of documentation and the provision of witnesses. That has been the commitment of the government throughout this process and it will remain so for the remainder of this inquiry. Thank you very much, Cabinet Secretary. Can I call Jackie Bailey? Thank you very much, Presiding Officer. And, and let me start with the words of the First Minister to the Chamber on the 17th of January 2019, because I think it is worth reminding us what she said. The inquiries will be able to ask for whatever material they want. And I undertake today that we will provide whatever material they request. My commitment is that the government and I will cooperate fully with it. The Deputy First Minister is, however, reinterpreting what the First Minister said to mean something completely different. Contrary to what the Scottish Government say, the Committee has had partial information, pages of white paper with no information on it at all because it's all been redacted, delayed information and in some cases no information at all. Information on complaints handling was supposed to be provided to the Committee by the end of August. We are now in November and we're no clearer about when it will be received. Despite repeated letters and requests, despite the convener having to put her foot down very publicly, and I pay tribute to her for doing so, the Scottish Government continues to stick its fingers in its ears and refuses to provide the information. Presiding officer, this is simply not good enough. And this evening, I hope the Parliament votes for the release of the legal advice provided to the Scottish Government. And if the Scottish Government ignore the will of this Parliament, then we can only assume that they really do have something to hide. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood. I'm Charles Fletcher. And coming up in the next half hour, as England returns to lockdown, the Chancellor extends furlough into March next year. And the First Minister says she may bring in legal measures to stop Scots travelling out of their local areas under new restrictions here. Saturday night came to a standstill as news emerged through the day that a statement was imminent from Downing Street. At first it was billed for late afternoon, then early evening. It eventually came just ahead of Strictly, but by that stage we all knew what was coming because of detailed advance information given to ITV's Robert Peston. 
In an extraordinary series of tweets, he revealed what the Prime Minister was about to say. Before we hear from the Prime Minister, I must clarify to you, he's speaking only about England. In this country, alas, as across much of Europe, the virus is spreading even faster than the reasonable worst-case scenario of our scientific advisers, whose models, as you've just seen, now suggest that unless we act, we could see death in this country running at several thousand a day, a peak of mortality, alas, uh, bigger than the one we saw in April. And so now is the time to take action because there is no alternative. And from Thursday until the start of December, you must stay at home. You may only leave home for specific reasons, including for education, for work, let's say if you cannot work from home, for exercise and recreation outdoors with your household or on your own uh, with one person from another household, uh, for medical reasons, appointments, uh, and to escape injury or, or harm, to shop for food and essentials, and to provide care for vulnerable people or as a volunteer. I'm afraid non-essential shops, leisure and entertainment venues will all be closed, though click and collect services can continue and essential shops will remain open so there's no need to stock up. Pubs, bars, restaurants must close except for takeaway and delivery services. Workplaces should stay open where people can't work from home, for example, in the construction and manufacturing sectors. Single adult households can still form exclusive support bubbles with one other household and children will still be able to move between homes if their parents are separated. I'm under no illusions about how difficult this will be for businesses which have already had to endure such hardship this year and I'm truly, truly sorry uh, for that. Uh, and that's why we're going to extend the furlough system through November. The furlough scheme was a success in the spring. It supported people and businesses in a critical time. We will not end it. We will extend furlough until December. Christmas is going to be different this year, perhaps very different. But it's my sincere hope and belief that by taking tough action now, we can allow families across the country to be together. Now, crucially in that statement, the Prime Minister underpinned a commitment to extend the furlough scheme just five hours before it was due to end. It immediately caused confusion about whether it applied to Scotland and the other devolved nations, or only for England. The First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, says it should be available to all parts of the country, and not just when England is in lockdown. I made clear last week when I set out the levels that would apply initially that we might yet have to go further and that we can't rule out and shouldn't rule out a move to level four for all or parts of the country. And while that decision would never be easy, uh, there is no doubt that the availability of a more extensive furlough scheme of the kind that the Prime Minister announced on Saturday would make it slightly less difficult because workers would have more of their wages paid. At this stage, the indication is that the more generous furlough scheme is only going to be available for the next month uh, during the period of England's lockdown. Now, we continue to press the case that it should be 
available to devolved administrations whenever it is needed. And I think most reasonable people would think that is the fair position. And I, with colleagues in the Welsh and Northern Irish governments, have pressed that point very firmly at the COBRA meeting, which has just concluded. The Prime Minister and his colleagues appeared to contradict each other on the scope of the furlough extension over subsequent days. Here's the SNP's Westminster leader, Ian Blackford, in the Commons. Mr Speaker, on Monday the Prime Minister agreed access to the furlough scheme at 80% for Scotland if lockdown restrictions require it. Subsequently, a number of his ministers have rolled back on that promise and the Scottish Government have not received any detail and what the commitment means in practice. Today is the Prime Minister's opportunity to clear up this mess of his own government's making. Will Scotland receive full 80% furlough and self-employed payments on current eligibility whenever it is requested by the Scottish Government in the months ahead? Well, I'm, Mr Speaker, I hesitate to accuse the Right Honourable Gentleman of failing to listen to what I said on, on Monday, but I think he heard exactly uh, what I said. I gave a commitment then. I in no way budge uh, from that uh, commitment. Furlough is a UK-wide scheme. Uh, it's helped save, I think, about 10 million jobs uh, in this country, including about a million in Scotland, Mr Speaker. Ian Blackford. Well, of course, what the Prime Minister said on Monday is that if the devolved administrations asked for it, that it would be granted. That was a direct answer that he gave to a question. So can I ask uh, whether, Mr Speaker, the Scottish Government, who've been waiting for clarity on whether Scotland will receive additional money as the result of increased spending from English local government, and is there also no clarity on whether the unlimited payments for business support in England will be made available on a similar demand-led basis? Will the Prime Minister clarify these two points now and commit to confirm in writing to the Scottish Government today that the access to the furlough scheme will be there if they need it? Minister. Mr Speaker, I think perhaps the most efficient thing I can uh, tell the Right Honourable Gentleman is that uh, my Right Honourable Friend, the Chancellor, uh, will be making a, a general uh, statement, as, as you can imagine, uh, Mr Speaker, about all the support, all the provisions that we're making uh, for this latest phase to tackle the autumn surge uh, of coronavirus tomorrow. Uh, and uh, what, I can, what I can tell him, uh, just re to repeat the points that I've made, uh, on Barnet Consequential, so there's already been $7.2 billion uh, gone to uh, help, uh, $7.2 I, I should say, uh, for Scotland. And we'll, we'll look, Mr Speaker, we're going to support people in Scotland and throughout the UK uh, during this crisis. After days of confusion, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak announced he's extending furlough across the UK into March 2021. We can announce today that the furlough scheme will not be extended for one month. It will be extended until the end of March. The government will continue to help pay people's wages up to 80% of the normal amount. All employers will have to pay for hours not worked is the cost of employer NICs and pension contributions. We'll review the policy in January to decide whether economic circumstances are improving enough to ask employers to contribute more. Of course, as the furlough itself is now being extended to the end of March, the original purpose of the job retention bonus to incentivise employers to keep people in work until the end of January obviously falls away. Instead, we will redeploy a retention incentive at the appropriate time. And for self-employed people, I can confirm the next income support grant, which covers the period November to January, will now increase to 80% of average profits 
up to £7,500. Mr Speaker, I also want to reassure the people of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. The furlough scheme was designed and delivered by the Government of the United Kingdom on behalf of all the people of the United Kingdom, wherever they live. That has been the case since March, it is the case now and will remain the case until next March. It is a demonstration of the strength of the Union and an undeniable truth of this crisis We have only been able to provide this level of economic support because we are a united kingdom. And I can announce today that the upfront guaranteed funding for the devolved administrations is increasing from £14 billion to £16 billion. This Treasury is, has been and will always be the Treasury for the whole of the United Kingdom. So England is back in lockdown. MPs voted for the measures by 516 votes to 38, but there was considerable unrest on the Tory benches and a series of abstentions led by former Prime Minister Theresa May. Here, the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, appeared before the Parliament's Covid committee. She says she'll not rush into changes, but there will be a review, as planned, this coming Tuesday. It may mean the introduction of travel restrictions and they could be enforced by law. In terms of guidance, we are actively considering whether we we give a legal underpinning in future weeks to these travel restrictions, and I'll I'll probably say more about that at the review point next week. Uh, But whatever approach you take to travel restrictions, it it relies on people uh, abiding by them. Uh, You will always have a risk, and I I don't mean to to sound pejorative about human behaviour, but we have to recognise realities. If you have a, a... a geographic situation within Clyde versus other parts of Greater Glasgow and Clyde with pubs and restaurants significantly different in terms of their operation to other areas. You, you pose a risk to Inverclyde of, of an importation uh, of the virus. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm saying you have to have pubs closed in Inverclyde for as long as they're closed in Glasgow, but these things start to be a bit of a, a consideration. And then there is, if you take Inverclyde down a level um, and I keep making this point because I think it is one that everybody always has to bear in mind. Taking an area down a level is partly a recognition that it's going in the right direction, but we've got to guard against seeing it as a kind of neutral reward for that. It's not neutral. You increase transmission as you open up in a lower level. So would we be opening up risks of the virus spreading in Inverclyde when the people of Inverclyde are then dependent on hospital services across Greater Glasgow and Clyde that are under quite significant pressure. So going back to the convener's initial question, this is the territory that is much more judgment-led and therefore, by definition, a bit more subjective and therefore, I understand by definition, harder for people to kind of get their, their heads around and understand. But it is really important that we take that broader contextual picture into account when reaching these decisions because the the decision about whether an area is in level uh, 0, 1, 2, 3 or 4 has a big impact on what will happen with the virus. So if you're going to take a le- an area down a level, you have to be sure that the increase in transmission that that is likely to uh, allow, everything else tells you that you can cope with that without things quickly running out of control. Time now for questions to the First Minister. We begin with Ruth Davidson, leader of the Scottish Conservative Group at Holyrood. All parties recognise the importance of testing 
as a crucial tool in suppressing coronavirus. We've all fought hard to see regular testing of groups such as NHS workers and care home staff. Last week, the Scottish Government rightly reinstated the regular testing of hospital patients over 70 after a whistleblower pointed out that these tests had been quietly dropped. However, there is another group who are often in contact with vulnerable patients and are in and out of care homes regularly, and that is ambulance staff. Three weeks ago, the First Minister received the same correspondence as I did from a concerned paramedic, highlighting the high risk of spreading the infection and asking for regular testing of Scottish Ambulance Service personnel. I know the First Minister will have responded to the paramedic, as I have, and I ask what action she has taken and whether regular ambulance crew tests have now been initiated. First Minister. Um, can I, first of all, before I come on to the issue of uh, testing and uh, particularly uh, the issue of testing ambulance workers, can I just complete uh, some of the points uh, that Ruth Davidson uh, asked earlier on um, before we, we move on? Uh, firstly, it is absolutely the case uh, that we expect hospitals to separate COVID and non-COVID patients al along the, the red and the green uh, zone uh, plan that I've spoken about. Uh, we obviously uh, expect and trust those working in our health service to manage demand and capacity in a way that is clinically uh, appropriate. Of course, in terms of capacity, uh, while we are looking uh, very carefully at capacity on a daily basis, we also have, because we made sure we had this contingency earlier in the year, the ability, should it be required, uh, to use the NHS Louisa Jordan for COVID capacity. It's currently helping uh, with non-COVID uh, procedures uh, and consultations on the NHS. Um, secondly, on the issue of testing over 70s, Ruth Davidson has uh, not been entirely accurate on uh, the position. We never stopped uh, testing of over 70s when they are admitted uh, to hospitals. Uh, the change is around uh, testing over 70s uh, on a regular basis, doing it every few days. There was a, a sense that that was uh, not uh, the most effective thing to do, and that also for older people that can be very invasive. So the regular uh, testing every, I think it was every four days uh, previously, is now down to clinical judgment and if that is considered appropriate. But the testing of every over 70 when admitted to hospital never changed, and I think it is important uh, to stress that. Um, on ambulance workers, I understand uh, very clearly and very well uh, the desire of people, particularly in our health service, um, and more generally people who feel they are working in capacities that uh, gives them a higher exposure to COVID uh, to want to be tested regularly. We are building testing capacity uh, all of the time and rapidly. We are actually doing that uh, faster and we have uh, more ambitious plans in terms of the NHS Scotland capacity than even we will see build through the UK-wide uh, Lighthouse Laboratory Network. But we have to take decisions on the use of that capacity based on clinical uh, advice and prioritisation. And the answer to what have we done about that, we just just uh, two weeks ago or thereabouts, we published our updated testing uh, strategy, which set out the clinical groups that we would expand testing to next. Uh, that is based on the advice of uh, our, our clinical advisors within Scottish Government, and we will continue to consider other groups as it is uh, possible to do that. And ambulance workers and paramedics will be very much part of that consideration. Ruth Jameson. Over the coming months, bed capacity will be absolutely critical, but so will the availability of frontline health workers in our hospital. In the first wave of this pandemic, we were able to rely on the superb efforts of nursing and medical students to help the NHS through those difficult months. Nearly 2,500 student nurses and over 500 trainee doctors joined through the COVID-accelerated recruitment programme. 
However, as the Scottish Government's Winter Preparedness Plan also makes clear, Ministers believe that it would not be appropriate to mobilise that group of students in the same way this time around because they're not as far through their training. That is entirely understandable, but it does leave a very substantial gap, numbering some 3,000 people who are not going to be available to help in our hospitals during the second wave. We know from the stark intervention from the heads of the Royal Colleges of their grave reservations of how prepared we really are for the pressures of winter. The Winter Preparedness Plan gives no detail of how it will find or recruit extra staff in the absence of student mobilisation. Doctors and nurses are already under pressure and they need reinforcements. So can the First Minister give details of where that recruitment will come from today? First Minister. Uh, we, of course, uh, continue to uh, have access to the GMC emergency register. We have the, the pool of returners as well that, that we are able to draw on. Uh, there is a, a winter workforce plan that has currently been finalised and will be published uh, by the Health Secretary shortly. Uh, we are uh, continuing to plan on a contingency basis across all of these different aspects of uh, what is required to ensure uh, the response from the National Health Service that people with COVID and those without COVID have a right to expect. Um, I, I am given what I and other ministers are dealing with on a, a daily basis right now, uh, I am never going to stand here and minimise or underplay the severity of the challenge we face over the winter months. I am extremely concerned about that and I don't think there will be anybody in my position in any country across Europe who is not uh, similarly concerned and I don't uh, have any shred of complacency about it. But what I do know is that because of the uh, decisions that we have taken that this Parliament has collectively been part of in recent weeks and uh, primarily because of the compliance and the sacrifices of people across the country, we are in a relatively, and I stress that word, we are in a relatively better position as we go into winter uh, than, and I don't mean this as a, in any pejorative sense, than some other parts of the UK and indeed other uh, countries across Europe. Uh, that could change very quickly and I, I absolutely recognise that, but we uh, are planning uh, we are taking careful decisions. We are looking across all of these things every single day. Uh, I take uh, my full responsibility for that as we go through the winter. But I would make this point again uh, to people across the country. Uh, if we are to get through this winter, keeping COVID under control and therefore protecting the NHS from that winter pressure, there are always other winter pressures that confront our National Health Service, it means each and every one of us has to continue to comply with the restrictions in place. The evidence right now is that that is having a positive impact and that should give all of us some cautious hope at this stage. But we will only see that progress continue if all of us continue to abide. And that is my appeal. Uh, and it is delivered with a lot of uh, gratitude to people across Scotland uh, as we go into this next phase of COVID and indeed go into the winter. Labour leader Richard Leonard questions the First Minister on anxieties within the NHS. This week is International Stress Awareness Week. So what action is the government taking to ensure that the second wave of the pandemic does not bring a second wave of stress and anxiety for NHS workers? First Minister. Well, firstly, I, I'm going to treat uh, those who work in our NHS uh, and, and in social care uh, with the respect I think all of us uh, agree they deserve. I'm not going to stand here and pretend 
uh, to anybody in our NHS or across the country generally that the second wave of a global pandemic will not bring stress and anxiety. It will bring stress and anxiety to all of us and it will particularly bring that to people working in our National Health Service. I am by uh, no means alone when I say this and I've said it before. My, my own sister works in the front line of our National Health Service. I've seen over the past few weeks that pressure build on, on her in the job she does as more COVID patients have been admitted to the hospital she works in. All of us are aware of that, and I, as First Minister, as well as uh, the sister of somebody in this position, worry deeply about it. And I take my responsibility to do whatever we can to uh, help ensure that that is minimised uh, very, very seriously. And that's why we've taken the steps that I've set out. Uh, of course, we, in addition, uh, have our mental health uh, transition and recovery plan as well, to recognise not just the mental health and stress impacts of those working in health and social care, but, but more generally. Um, I, I, I would say to people across the chamber and across the country, I, people will agree or disagree with decisions I take. That is perfectly uh, understandable. Um, and people will think and, and question about whether we're doing enough on X, Y or Z issue. But nobody for a single second uh, should be uh, under any illusion that we do not fully comprehend the severity of what we face and that we are not literally spending every moment trying to prepare the country uh, for what might lie ahead. But I keep coming back to this point, might lie ahead. Uh, the winter will be challenging, I think. Uh, I think that is a certainty. How challenging it will be as a result of COVID comes down to all of us. And that is a point all of us uh, must remember and continue to uh, help communicate to people the length and breadth of the country. Richard Leonard. Uh, thank you. But uh, we should not um, accept the inevitability of the heightened stress that staff will face any more than we should accept the inevitability of the spread of the pandemic uh, rising. So, First Minister, NHS workers are demonstrating outside Parliament today for fair pay. They deserve more than the First Minister's gratitude and applause. Last night, Wilma Brown, a Unison NHS representative in Fife, told a meeting that I took part in, and I quote her, that all staff are vital to keep the NHS running, that there has been no let-up, but everything is a fight. NHS workers like Wilma want to prioritise the fight on COVID, but the government is making them fight to prove their own worth. First Minister, this year of all years, your government is only prepared to talk about NHS pay when it is tied to reforms, to cuts to other terms and conditions of employment. That is the Cabinet Secretary for Health's view, that pay and reform go hand in hand. Is that the First Minister's view, or will you deliver fair pay for our NHS workers? No ifs, no buts, no strings. First Minister. Um, we are absolutely committed to delivering a fair uh, pay deal uh, for staff in uh, the next uh, financial year. And fairness uh, in this context will mean something different, uh, I think, to what it would mean pre-COVID. Uh, so I am absolutely committed to that. But I'm also committed to doing it, which I, I would have thought a trade unionist would be too, to doing that through negotiation with health service uh, unions. Uh, we uh, have uh, a negotiation that is uh, underway. Talks uh, are actively uh, underway with all parties through the 
The Scottish Terms and Conditions uh, Committee uh, they've been meeting frequently. Uh, they most recently met on the 2nd of November. Uh, the Stack Secretariat side uh, representatives include Unison, um, and I think the Health Secretary will be meeting with them shortly uh, to discuss this. We want, actually, if we can, to expedite these negotiations and, if possible, to bring forward the agreed pay settlement uh, so that we can uh, perhaps conclude the matter before the start of the financial year. Uh, of course, NHS Scotland staff going into COVID uh, were and remain the best paid anywhere in the United Kingdom, rightly so. But we all recognise, and I particularly recognise, the debt of gratitude we owe to people in NHS and uh, social care, and we intend that that uh, debt of gratitude is repaid, not just in words, uh, but in practice as well. Um, and can I say finally to Richard Leonard, um, I don't accept the inevitability of any of this, which is why uh, we are taking the toughest possible decisions right now about restrictions we are asking people to comply with. They're not easy, they're not always popular, but they are necessary if we are to ensure that a, a COVID wave that overwhelms our NHS over the winter is not inevitable. It's why we took really difficult decisions uh, to put limits on hospitality so that it is not inevitable that we have that second wave. Can I gently remind Richard Leonard that just a couple of weeks ago he stood up at First Minister's questions and accused me of treating hospitality like Sodom and Gomorrah because of taking those tough decisions. You can't have it both ways. You can't ask for us to take the action that makes sure a second wave of COVID is not inevitable and then criticise those actions when we take them. The co-chair of the Scottish Greens is Alison Johnston. Care home testing was announced for staff on the 25th of May. Well, it's now the 5th of November and someone could still be working in a Scottish hospital with COVID and not even know it. The Nosocomial Review Group have approved a new strategy for regular hospital testing and the Scottish Government's own testing review established weekly testing as a priority for Scotland. So can the First Minister give us a date? When will routine weekly testing for all hospital staff begin? First Minister. Uh, we already uh, test uh, groups of uh, hospital and healthcare staff, so all uh, asymptomatic uh, healthcare staff are already uh, tested for COVID where uh, there is an outbreak in a previously COVID-free uh, ward. Uh, previously in the summer, that was extended to include staff working in the highest uh, risk areas, uh, specialist oncology wards, long-term care of the elderly wards, uh, and long-term care, uh, long-term psychiatry wards. Uh, healthcare workers are already also offered testing if they are working on non-COVID wards where uh, there is uh, a cluster uh, and local infection prevention and control teams are also advised to consider testing staff uh, when a single unexpected case of COVID is identified in a ward. Uh, and we continue to move forward with the uh, recommendations and the priorities set out in our testing strategy, which will extend uh, routine testing uh, in the NHS as it will do across social care. We have to do that uh, in line with building up the capacity to do that. Um, as we've set out before, the, the, the top priority for our testing capacity right now is people with symptoms because that is how we best break chains 
of transmission. Beyond that, uh, the priority we have set, uh, and, and this has been happening for some time now, is weekly testing of uh, staff working in care homes, given the vulnerability of care homes. I have already uh, talked about the groups of NHS staff that are already tested, and as we build the capacity between now and the end of the year, that will progressively build up uh, to include more groups of uh, staff in the health service, and we will continue to keep Parliament updated on that progress. Lib Dem leader Willie Rennie says testing for COVID must now move faster. Uh, I want to return to the issue um, of testing because I think the First Minister has been behind the curve on much of testing, but it's not too late to catch up. What I want to understand is why all the innovations are happening in other parts of the country and other parts of Europe. Eight months into this crisis, we should have the capacity to do more than this. If Slovakia are looking at that testing, and they've tried it over the weekend, if Liverpool are going to test half a million people, why are we not looking at that innovation here in Scotland too? We could start with Lanarkshire or students for Christmas, which I know the First Minister is looking at, but for all we seem to do is keep all options under review. We need to be doing more than this. So can the First Minister give us some kind of timetable for when this kind of innovation is going to happen? Willie Rennie is just wrong um, about that in in many different respects. So, for example, we have over recent weeks been testing uh, a technology uh, called Lamira testing. Uh, We have been doing the clinical validation. We're waiting on the outcome of that so that we can get that in use uh, broadly uh, across our NHS. You you can't just start using uh, new technology without going through the proper uh, validation. Um, If I am right, as I understand I am, although I'm clearly not an expert on uh, the Slovakian uh, approach to COVID, but if it is the case, it's antibody testing. Uh, Frankly, the judgment uh, of my clinical advisors right now is that doing population-wide antibody testing uh, is not effective because nobody can yet tell a person what, if they test positive for antibodies, what that means. Does it mean that they are immune for a day, a week, a month, a year, uh, or not at all? So that is not something that our consideration would say is a, a sensible thing to do right now. Before we go, a moment from America and this week's presidential election. This clip is for journalism students at Glasgow Clyde College who undertook the traditional all-nighter, sitting up to watch results coming in live. They may need another before the final result is known. I admire their stamina. This is a very big moment. This is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at 4 o'clock in the morning and add them to the list, okay? It's, it's a very sad, it's a very sad moment. To me, this is a very sad moment. And we will win this. And we, as far as I'm concerned, we already have one. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And folks, you heard me say it before. Every time I walk out of my grandpa's house up in Scranton, he'd yell, Joey, keep the faith. And my grandma, when she was alive, you'll know, Joey, spread it. Keep the faith, guys. We're going to win this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Your patience is great. And that's The Week in Hollywood. Join me again at the same time next week or on Replay or SoundCloud. I'm Charles Fletcher. This is the time of year we remember those who fought and died in conflict. This year is the 75th anniversary of VJ Day, Victory in Japan, and the end of the Second World War. 
As the pandemic hits our traditional services of remembrance, wherever you are and wherever I may be, let's pause for a moment and quietly say thank you. Ahiva.